What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. A full preview of Super Wildcard Weekend in the NFL. Plus, wrapping up our NFL rankings with the final bottom 10 list. And reacting to Michigan's big win in the National Championship. You're listening to episode 99 of Let Me Speak. Let's get it started. Intro, please. Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. Gotta get that right. It's the first episode of the new year for Let Me Speak. And not only that, but it's number 99, which means we have one episode to go before we hit number 100. I am so excited. But hello once again, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. I hope everyone had a tremendous Christmas and happy new year. Hope everything was safe and everyone was healthy up here in the Massachusetts area. We got our white Christmas a little bit late as we had a little bit of snow over the weekend. Hope everyone was able to dig themselves out this past weekend. Of course, we got a big snow uh, windstorm, I should say, as well. It's going to get very gusty. So we're going to try and get this in quickly before that wind starts to come in. And hopefully the studio here, studio, isn't uh, tremendously damaged, but... Of course, we're we're done talking about Christmas and New Year's and all that kind of stuff. We When we get to January, it's playoff time in the NFL, and that's what everyone wants to focus on. So I say we jump right into it and we preview all the games that are taking place. Obviously, the top seeds in both conferences, the Ravens and the Niners, they are off until next weekend, which I have no problem with at all. I think those two were the best teams all regular season in their respective conference. But there was a ton of parody, both the AFC and the NFC, that it's like it's finally good to get some kind of structure. But even some of these games and some of these matchups, I had to double take and be like, wait, this is a playoff matchup between these two? Because entering the season, I would not have expected it. For example, I would not have expected the Browns at 11-6 and to make the playoffs with Joe Flacco leading the charge versus the AFC South winning Houston Texans at 10-7. and I did not have that on my preseason bingo card. And if any of you did, well, then you should go play the lottery because that is a pretty, pretty lucky guess. Um, In diving into this game in Houston uh, on Saturday... I initially, you know, for those of you that have listened week after week, you've heard me talk about the Browns and how they got to where they are. And me, I was on the argument of it goes against logic that a team that has started now five different quarterbacks is sitting at 11 and six. And everyone is saying this is the team you do not want to play now. That's coming from me, an armchair analyst with no football background at all. I luckily had two guys who sold me on it. 
on our last Six Rings postgame show on WEEI. I had Nick Fitzy Stevens and Andy Hart. They sold me. They sold me on the roster construction that Cleveland has put together. And now looking at it from a bird's eye view, it makes sense now. You have arguably the best defense in football. You know, statistically, they have the fewest yards allowed per game, and they are in the top five with 28 takeaways, all led by Miles Garrett, who's just a game wrecker right now. He's in the top 10 for sacks. Uh, he should be getting Defensive Player of the Year consideration once again. And it's that construction around this sort of quarterback that you have the great defense, but then even offensively, you know, even if you lose Nick Chubb, they still have this game plan of just power running when you alternate with Jerome Ford and Kareem Hunt, those two basically splitting carries. Your receiver core is actually really good. You have what I would call maybe the most underrated tight end in football in David Njoku. You obviously have uh, Amari Cooper, leading the way but I mean that means nothing that means nothing because Joe Flacco has been the story maybe not just of the the Brown season but maybe in all of football the fact that a 40 year old was just sitting on the couch just watching as the season goes by Deshaun Watson gets hurt PJ Walker stinks Dorian Thompson Robinson stinks all of a sudden Cleveland makes the call to a guy who was once their rival in Baltimore and says, hey, we need a QB. Are you in? Joe Flacco signs. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Flacco is maybe having the best stretch of his career. I mean, he's got more touchdown passes in the five games he's played than all of the other Cleveland quarterbacks combined. He's got 13, and I believe the number was 11 from the other four. So it's amazing to see what Joe Flacco is doing. We know that he, for his entire career, has been a gunslinger. He's got tremendous arm strength. But even like in the Thursday night game, when they clinched it against the Jets, the fact that he's scrambling and he's running for first downs, I mean, this is a guy that can move the ball much better than any of the other four uh, Cleveland QBs from this season. The only issue is, his interceptions. He's been prone to pick after pick after pick. And I believe the number was uh, eight on the year. 13 touchdowns to eight picks, which by far is definitely more. I think he had like a three interception game against someone I can't remember who. So the big key for Flacco is avoiding his usual interceptions because he is prone to make those big mistakes. And Obviously, he's got the experience enough to know um, the big uh, defensive schemes that Houston might provide them. I mean, Houston does have an underrated defense, but it's not powerful enough like Cleveland. It, it's not going to force Flacco into making those mistakes. I think it's all on Flacco himself to avoid throwing those interceptions and making those big mistakes. So obviously Flacco is the big key in this one. On the other side for Houston, I just see this as a really, really young team. I mean, CJ Stroud has been great. No doubt about it. He should be unanimous offensive rookie of the year. The thing is, though, he's still a rookie, okay? And he hasn't been on the big stage of the NFL postseason like he was with his time at Ohio State 
or even the last game against Indy. I mean, yes, he led the charge in their must win uh, a week ago when they knocked out the Colts. Um, the big thing, though, for Stroud, at least for me, is that he's got his favorite receivers. He's got Nico Collins, and the stats have him, Collins, that is, at 1,200 yard rece- over 1,200 yards and 76 catches from Stroud alone. That's just him. And we've seen over the past couple of weeks how the injuries have really piled up. I mean, before Collins, it was Tank Dell. He's on IR with a fractured leg. Noah Brown has been out. He connected with him a a little bit, but he's been out. So the big thing for Stroud is he needs to spread the ball out to much more than Nico Collins because Cleveland's defense, not only are they just powerful, but schematically, they're really, really good at taking away those big options. So there's no doubt in my mind that the Browns' defense circling on Collins will try and take him out of the game, which means you need your tight end Dalton Schultz. Uh, you need Robert Woods, who's a Wiley veteran out there. Flacco's got to be, or uh, Stroud, excuse me, has to be able to spread it out to different targets. Uh, if you ask me, though, I would say that the Browns are the favorite, even though they are on the road. Um, I would, I would, if I had to make a game pick, I would say Joe Flacco and the Browns uh, will win this game. I think Houston's going to be good uh, just year after year. This is the first time they've been on this big stage, obviously with a rookie head coach and D'Amico Ryans. Yes, Ryans has been on the San Fran staff, but he's never been the guy leading the charge uh, in this sort of stage. So I think I would favor the Browns in this matchup on Saturday. So I think Cleveland will knock out Houston. Uh, The next game on that Saturday will stay in the NFC. It will be the Dolphins and the Chiefs. Now, I have my doubts about both Miami and Kansas City making deep runs. Obviously, Miami can't win against good teams. The Chiefs have their offensive woes, but they finally come to a head. And this is actually the second time that they're playing each other. Obviously, the Chiefs had that 21-14 win in London. But the reason why I would favor Kansas City in this matchup is because on Miami's side, there's two factors why I can't trust them. One, I already said it. They struggle against good teams. But two, that defense just keeps getting battered and bruised, and they keep missing a bunch of players. Now, in terms of where they struggle against good teams, they've only had six games this year with teams above 500. And the only win they had was that squeaky 22 to 20 win over the Cowboys, which I believe was around the Christmas time frame. I I believe that was the case. Other than that, they were one in five. And not only that, but they've been outscored in that one in five span, 197 to 106. You got to keep in mind, this includes... The blowout loss to Buffalo, 48-20, and the 56-19 loss to Baltimore. So I have no faith, really, that Miami, against a Kansas City defense that is really good, maybe arguably one of the best in the league, um, that they are going to be able to get over the Kansas City hump. That's number one. The second, about the defense. I mean, you already had Bradley Chubb, and Jalen Phillips already on IR. But now, this past week, Jerome Baker, out. Xavier Howard, out. Andrew Van Ginkle, out. So that means you're going to have Eli Apple taking on, like, Travis Kelsey. Uh, You're going to have – your pass rush is completely decimated now. I mean, Van Ginkle, Chubb, Phillips were basically one, two, and three for Miami in terms of pass rushing this year. Um, So – 
really for I, I would trust that Kansas City can come up with the victory. The only thing that I worry about, obviously, offensively, is that the offensive line needs to limit their penalties. They We can't have Jawan Taylor shooting the entire team in the foot. Obviously, Kadarius Toney should not see the field at all. Um, so offensive line protection and the receivers just catch the dang ball. Just catch the ball from Mahomes. I think Mahomes just has to go back to the basics and he will be just fine. And I think the game off uh, this past week against the Chargers, I think that's good at least for him mentally because we know he's got the talent, but some of the throws that we saw like against Buffalo uh, from time to time against Cincinnati, like it just hasn't, he hasn't been himself. So I think that the Chiefs should win this game. And honestly, I think it will be a two-score win because I think Kansas City will right the ship at the right time, at least for this week. I would be very shocked if they do not uh, beat the Dolphins uh, in this wild card game. So that's your Saturday slate. Let's go to the Sunday slate now. And obviously we stay in the AFC, which again, another shocker for me is seeing the Steelers make the playoffs at 10-7. and And now they go into Buffalo to take on the Bills. And with all the turmoil and the controversy with Mike Tomlin and his crew, I am just shocked that Pittsburgh was able to make the playoffs. Now, big question, obviously for me, and I think for everyone, is quarterback. Um, They've started, they've charted out three different guys in Kenny Pickett, Mitch Trubisky, and Mason Rudolph. Tomlin said he's going to go to Rudolph. But honestly, I think whatever way you look at it, I don't really see any big difference. I mean, you have Kenny Pickett, who uh, has a hard time really moving the ball down the field consistently. You have Trubisky, who's prone to interceptions. And then Mason Rudolph, who's basically a career backup. So offensively, they've got some great weapons. Like, I'm a big fan of George Pickens and Deontay Johnson. I like that combination. I think Pat Fryermuth is a very underrated tight end. You know, maybe a fringe top 10 guy. Um, but it's all a matter of how the quarterback is able to get it to him. So I, I have my concerns. Um, but honestly, like I, I would I'm trying to hype up Pittsburgh as if they have a chance, but basically now that TJ Watt is been ruled out uh because of the grade two MCL sprain that he had last week, there's virtually no chance. No chance that the Steelers can win without TJ Watt, unless Buffalo shoots themselves in the foot. But I don't think that's the case because these past five weeks or so, they have been on fire. This is a much different team than when we saw them at six and six. They've rattled off five straight. It took some time, and now they found their mojo at the right time. And the big thing for me going into the season was Josh Allen. Where are the weapons around him that can take the load off of them? Specifically, in the running back. And sure enough, James Cook has a breakout year, is the first 1,000-yard rusher for Buffalo since 2017 when LaShawn McCoy did it. So they need to keep Cook a big part of the game plan. And then obviously, Allen just has to limit his mistakes. Like, we know he can make a big play now and again, but he's also prone to many interceptions, which is why he was second most in the league this year with 18 picks, only behind Sam Howell. So. As long as Allen doesn't become too risky and James Cook is well involved, I think Buffalo can even make a run to the AFC Championship. 
That's really that's how confident I think I am in Buffalo. But it's not going to be because another team beats them. It's because they beat themselves with all the mistakes. But this one should be an easy one for the Bills. They should this should be a two score win at least against Pittsburgh. Now they're feisty. Steelers are a feisty team, but Buffalo is just rolling, and I don't see anyone stopping that momentum at all. So that's the AFC picture. Now we can go to the NFC picture and look at that, uh, those slated games. We'll start with Packers and Cowboys. Um, I really want to focus more on the Dallas side of things because I think this Green Bay team is a very young team, limited playoff experience. I believe I saw that they're the fifth youngest team to uh, make the playoffs. So the, the inexperience is definitely going to be a big factor. I mean, really on the roster, I think Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon, and maybe a couple of defensive guys are uh, the only guys with playoff experience. So they're kind of just playing with house money, considering the change from Aaron Rodgers to Jordan Love. Um, I think the offense can get hot, but they just need to be more consistent, and they need to find that balance. Um, for Dallas... This is this is a big test for me because now is the time where I really start to judge them. You know, I would make these quick assumptions like on our power rankings, like, oh, they would be at seven, then they would be at two, and they've had these back and forth. But ultimately, the big picture was when they get to the playoffs, that's where the judgment starts. Um, and, you know, thank goodness that for this first game and that they won the East, thank goodness that they get to play at home because they've been unstoppable at home. 8-0, over 37 points a game. Um, they are a much different team. So they needed that division and they needed to get these home games, um, which they did. So that's good on them. The defense, though, does concern me because we saw this past Sunday, Stephon Gilmore leave with a shoulder injury. This is a team that already doesn't have Diggs, who was their top corner. Um, obviously, they do have Deron Bland, but I don't trust him as the corner to go to because Gilmore not only has the experience, he has the credentials to take on, whether it be uh, Christian Watson if he's healthy, or Romeo Dobbs, or Jaden Reed, Dontavian Wicks, whoever it is. They can put Gilmore on anybody, and he'll be able to shut them down. If he's not on that field, then I get nervous about the passing game, uh, passing defense for Dallas. Um, hopefully, the spotlight isn't too big for Dak Prescott, like what has normally happened in his career. Um, he's had arguably his best season of his career. So you better hope that he doesn't throw it all away by doing the Dallas thing and choking it away. I do expect Dallas to win this game. I think they should, and they will beat the Packers just because I think this is at least for this round, it's a different Dallas team. It's a much different Dallas team than what we've seen in the past. Uh, this next one though, for Sunday night is going to be, whoo. Storylines aplenty between the Rams and the Lions. You got Matt Stafford taking on his old team. Lions looking for their first playoff win in, I don't know, 30 years or so. But it's just this all of a sudden turn from L.A. All of a sudden, they have a lethal offense. They just haven't been able to put it together consistently. Obviously, you can never doubt Matt Stafford. Um, you know, he's been one of the more underrated talents at quarterback since he's been in the league. He obviously won a ring a couple of years ago, but now he's got Cooper Cup, who's always reliable. You got Puka Nakua, who all of a sudden has become a star. And this is a very lethal offense now that they've got. Um, the question, though, is 
for Detroit, kind of similar to Dallas, it's Detroit. There's two things that scares me. It's the lack of experience and no Sam Laporta. Um, obviously, we saw Sam Laporta have a knee injury. Dan Campbell said it was an outside chance that he could play, but that just means it's going to be a heavier workload for Amon Ross St. Brown, which is Jared Goff's go-to guy. But even more than that, the lack of experience, not so much with the players is what concerns me. It's Dan Campbell, because this is the moment where Dan Campbell can't overthink things and he has to be smart, you know, not take any risks. You know, you go back to, I understand there was controversy in their loss to Dallas, with the two-point conversion. But even still, the first time doesn't work, you go for it again. Then you get another break. And at this point, you know, I understand going for the win, but you also have to be smart and go with all reliable. So really, if you asked me, in that game, when they had their third opportunity at a two-pointer, I would have just taken the kick. I would have tied the game and trust my defense. That's sort of the decision that Dan Campbell has to make. Like, if that was a playoff game... He should have been smart and taken the tie rather than go for the win. So this is, you know, we've seen Dan Campbell be very risky, go for it a lot on fourth down. Um, sometimes it's paid off. Sometimes it haven't hasn't. But this is where Dan Campbell needs to sort of get out of his own head and just go with simplifying things. Because I usually have a phrase I go back to, and that is, the easiest decision sometimes is the right decision. And that's where Dan Campbell gets in his way. So hopefully he can do that. And hopefully the Lions can get their first win because I'm rooting for them. They're a fun team to root for. I hope and I predict also that Detroit is going to win this game and they're finally going to break uh, their playoff streak. That's what I think is going to happen. Um, but though the last game is a good one. We got Philly and Tampa in the Monday night game. Um, to say that Philly has been skidding uh, is an understatement. They have been skidding at a dangerous rate. This was an Eagles team that started 10-1. and one. They finished 1-5. and five. They had blowout losses to San Fran and Dallas, teams they're expected to play in the playoffs if they move on. They've also had terrible losses to the Cardinals and to the Giants. And... You know, when I said this uh, for weeks and weeks, it was the concern level for Philly because this is not the same team that went to the Super Bowl a year ago. And now I'm right. Like, I just keep getting justified with those statements because no matter if it's Matt Patricia or Sean Desai, who's running the defense, they've been awful, awful defensively. I don't know what it is, but, you know, the fact that they can't rush the quarterback, they have no pass rush, which means more pressure on the secondary, and the secondary isn't what it's used to be. That's a problem. You know, defense is not going to win a championship, uh, at least for this Eagles team. That's got to get turned around. And that just means all the turnovers from Jalen Hurts that are at a much higher rate than they were a year ago are that much more amplified. You know, this was a guy who had 23 touchdowns to 15 picks, along with 15 rush touchdowns this year. Last year, he had 22 touchdown throws to six interceptions and 13 rush touchdowns. That means he was much more trustworthy to throw the ball. Now he's being relied on to run the ball because their running backs have not found any balance. And when he does go to the air, 
he makes too much mistakes. So he's got to be able, at least in the air attack, to not lean on A.J. Brown. This is He's got Devontae Smith. He's got Dallas Goddard. Hell, he's got Julio Jones. I know he's washed up, but at least he's somebody. So Jalen Hurts just has to trust his arm. Trust his arm and spread the ball around the field. That's what Baker Mayfield does for the Bucs. I've been a fan of Tampa for most of the year. It's just been the consistency that's hard to find. I mean, it's hard to find any consistency in the NFC South division. Um, But Baker Mayfield is just a gamer. He is an absolute gamer. I'm a big fan of him. His connection with Mike Evans has just been like that. And then obviously, it it would be kind of crazy for me to say that Tampa will win this game. But I think Tampa will win this game. I think the Eagles are spiraling too much out of control that even the Tampa offense will be able to score some points on them. So I think defensively, there is a big issue in Philly, and I think that costs them by eliminating them from the postseason. So I will pick Tampa on the upset at home to knock off the Eagles. So if you wanted a playoff preview, you just got it. Times 10. We looked at every game. I gave you some picks, and hopefully those picks do not come to bite me. And I hope that I can get all of them right and keep this train going. Um, but coming up next, we obviously have to put a bow on the NFL regular season and look at the teams that didn't make the postseason, but more importantly, rounded out our final bottom 10 ranking list that we do every single week. Don't you go anywhere. Now, like I said, we got to put a bow on the NFL regular season and look at the teams that missed out on the playoffs more so our bottom 10 power rankings. This is the last rankings that we'll do uh, for this season. Obviously, we don't need a top 10 because we've got all the playoff teams, but we can definitely have a bottom 10. Now, normally I would go week to week, but I'm just looking from the season as a whole on some of these teams. You know, maybe there might be some injury factors now and again, uh, similar to that. But ultimately, what I thought from the 23-24 season, these were the 10 worst teams in football. And I start with number 10, and I hate to do this because their last win was so good, but I have to put the Titans here at 6-11. and 11. I do give them some credit for a couple of big wins. Obviously, Will Levis's first start, where he threw four touchdowns, I thought was very impressive. I thought the very last week, eliminating Jacksonville deserves some big credit. But the problem, obviously, was, at least in the Titans' ownership side of things, was Mike Vrabel obviously didn't get his message across. No, I just think management did a terrible job giving Mike Vrabel some of the tools that he was given. I mean, the fact that in his time you trade A.J. Brown, who's now an all-pro and nearly won a Super Bowl with the Eagles, to instead go with Traylon Burks as a wide receiver, to have your number one signed right off the street a couple of weeks before the season in DeAndre Hopkins. Now, he had a great year, but why didn't you just go for him before? So ultimately, management put Mike Vrabel in a really, really tough spot, and Vrabel did all he could. You can see that he's got the support 
of some of his players. You saw Taylor Luan react in real time on the Rich Eisen show to Mike Vrabel's firing. He's definitely going to be a hot commodity because this is a guy who, and I think he was his second year, very early in his Titans tenure, led this team to the AFC Championship in 2020 with Ryan Tannehill as the quarterback. Okay, so Vrabel, I don't think he should have been let go in the first place. Obviously, there was, um, you know, if you have management and coach with two different viewpoints and they're not able to get along, then you have to get rid of one. But ultimately, the one who makes the hirings and firings and has the wrong point has the most power. So unfortunately, Mike Vrabel is out of a job. Um, I do expect him to get with a team very, very quickly, though. He's going to be probably the first option uh, to be hired, if not for a certain legendary head coach who we'll get into a little bit if he's not on the market. So Titans at 10, Vrabel was put in a really bad spot. Number nine, you know, for, for what was started out and the fact that they were able to turn things around, the Chicago Bears at 7 and 10, I thought did a good job of really salvaging the season. I don't know if anyone really expected them to make a make the playoffs or anything like that, but now that they have the number one pick locked up and they have Caleb Williams in sight, I feel like parting with Justin Fields just may be the answer. It doesn't it's not a knock on Fields cuz ultimately if it were me, I probably would have held on to Justin Fields, but the fact is what we saw from Caleb Williams now kind of again looking at that bird's eye view and a 360 degree uh, view of everything, you know, with the hype that Williams has, you might as well take the chance on it. You know, you thought it was Justin Fields and he obviously couldn't carry the load enough. You know, I'm still a fan of Fields and I think, I hope that he has a good career wherever he may go next. But I think for the Bears, you know, they made that trade. Uh, they brought in DJ Moore. Um, they let the Panthers have that number one overall pick. Look what's happened to them when they selected Bryce Young. Um, they, I just think they need a reload everywhere. They, they need it everywhere. They need new receivers. Uh, they need a new O-line. And Caleb Williams might be the guy to start building it around. So I think because it's now a realistic shot for Chicago, it might be time to move on from Justin Fields because, hey, he led him to seven and ten, or I mean, you know, there were a couple of a uh, couple of games he missed, um, but ultimately seven and ten. Uh, I guess for Chicago is not going to make it, not going to make it at all. Uh, the number eight team I'm putting on here. It took him a while to get this down low, but ultimately the Falcons to me land in the number eight spot, also at seven and ten. And I think what summarizes the Falcon season best was the firing of Arthur Smith. Because like I said a couple of weeks ago, this guy has no idea how to use the big name talents or how to even construct a good roster. How he had to juggle Desmond Ritter and Taylor Heineke back and forth. The fact that he's making these quarterback switches, keep in mind, with a division title still in reach. I know the South is bad, but this was a team up until that very last week of the season was in contention for the division title in the NFC South. So the fact that he continued to go back and forth from Ritter and Heineke, I mean, I understand at least from the GM side of things that there were much better quarterbacks to have, but at least from the coaching standpoint, you got to stick to one guy, stick to a quarterback and ride him out. 
And he did that too late between Desmond Ritter and Taylor Heineke. And then you also have um, Tyler Algier taking away uh, snaps and runs from Bijan Robinson, who you used your seventh pick on. Seventh pick. And then you also have Kyle Pitts, who you used a fourth pick on. You can't design plays for him to get him open and let him be a playmaker. Same thing with Drake London, who you did a couple of years ago. You have all this talent, and you can't use them at all. Again, completely justified to see Arthur Smith get fired. So hopefully whoever is the next guy in charge sees this talent and thinks, huh, I'm going to put them on the on the field and get them much more snaps than all these other guys who might not have that talent. Um, that's ultimately where I am with Atlanta. Just it was frustrating to see all the talent and them not get used. Number seven, I am putting the Jets here at also seven and ten. A lot of seven and ten teams out there. Um ultimately this was, you know, with the roster that they had, with if they did not have Zach Wilson as quarterback, this would be a playoff team. This would be a team that probably would have leapfrogged the Steelers, would have had better than a 10 and 7 record at least if they had Aaron Rodgers just slightly under what he normally is then this would be a much better team all obviously the plan derailed when on the fourth play Rodgers Achilles blows up and now he's calling out Jimmy Kimmel and responding to him just like that but even still with that guy at the quarterback position with the roster that they have they have a great running back in Brees Hall They've got great receiver options that can ultimately get better. And then, obviously, a defense that is very, very good. All they needed was the quarterback. And it obviously didn't go the way they thought it would. But there is optimism for the Jets that if Rodgers is even 10% less of what he normally is, this team is already better. We already know that Zach Wilson isn't the answer. Tim Boyle isn't the answer. Trevor Simeon ain't the answer, not by a long shot. I do expect the Jets to take a quarterback in this next draft because I think Wilson, his time is done. Um, they need another name to succeed Rodgers because Zach Wilson is not a capable starting quarterback in the NFL. That's just me. Number six, I am going to go to the Chargers on this one who finished 5-12 and 12. and the reason I'm giving them a little bit of this wiggle room was because of the injuries. I mean, they lost Mike Williams very early on, uh, and then they lost Justin Herbert later on in the year. But let's be honest, not getting rid of Brandon Staley after the collapse in the playoffs last year was what bit him. They put their trust in him, and he continued to make these crazy decisions that most of the time, at least for this year, bit them. You know, look at all the fourth down conversions that they went through, going for two instead of kicking the extra point, blah, 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 blah. I could I could write a novel on some of the decisions Staley made that were really bad. But at five and twelve, I'm sure that with a new with a new voice, whoever that may be, I'm sure that they will get the best out of Justin Herbert because you can't let a team like this, which has all this talent, you know, it's similar to what I said with the Jets. They've got talent offensively. They still got a good running back in Eckler. Maybe not an explosive running back, but he's good. You know, and then you obviously have Keenan Allen, Mr. Reliable. You'll get a healthy Mike Williams back, hopefully. And you just revamp you revamp some of what you got 
if the new man in charge isn't Brandon Staley, you're already in a better spot. Already in a better spot. Um, getting into the top five here, I'm going to put the Giants here at 6-11. and 11. Huh, 6-11? and 11? Lower than 5-12? and 12? Because the Giants had an awful start. An awful, awful start. And they really, even their injuries didn't really derail uh, anything. I mean, when Daniel Jones went down, they weren't even that good to begin with. When Saquon was out for a little bit, you know, that derailed things. But for the most part, he played a full season. So all the focus, at least rebuilding for Brian Dayball and everyone on the Giants is fix that offensive line. Really do. That's number one. Fix the offensive line. I don't think anyone got sacked uh, in the time that Daniel Jones played than Jones himself. And ultimately, that's what led to the big knee injury. And, you know, you had the good story of Tommy DeVito, but... His time ran out, obviously. Um, so offensive line, I mean, offense should be the main focus uh, for a priority, but specific groups, the line, and then the receivers is what I think they should be going after for the Giants. Uh, because I still like Dayball as a coach. I really think that his message can still get through uh, to a couple of these guys. Going to number four, though, I'm putting the Cardinals here because um, I do still believe that a full season for a healthy Kyler Murray will not give the Cardinals a 4-13 and record. You know, it will be better. They will be contending for a wild card. I'm sure with the fourth pick, or wherever it may be, I'm sure they'll get a good offensive lineman or receiver. I've already heard that Arizona's going to build around Kyler Murray. Uh, that, to me, felt like a given because he still showed his flashes of how good he can be. So give me a full season with Kyler and maybe a top-five pick, whoever it is they may be. And I think this will be a much better Cardinals team in 2024, without a doubt. Number three, I'm going to put the Commanders here, even though they have the second overall draft pick. They finished 4-13. and Let's just be honest. We knew that Ron Rivera's firing was the worst-kept secret in all of football. We knew probably around midseason that this wasn't going to work. Hell, we even said before the year, the first name that was going to be gone was Ron Rivera. You know, luckily, he made it through the whole season. So props to Rivera on that. But similar to the Giants, they need a better offensive line. I like offensively what they have. I think Sam Howell does deserve another chance. I mean, he had 21 picks, though, this year. That will get better over time. This is only his second season, keep in mind. It was his first full season as a starter. So I, I don't want to pump the brakes and say Sam Howell's career is done. You know, it's still early for him. You know, he's had, what, 17 games in his career, I mean, he started the finale a year ago. Then this past year, he uh, started all but one game, something like that. So I say give Sam Howell another chance. And I'm sure that with that second pick that they'll take Harrison Jr. Because uh, I don't think, you know, I, I think it would be dumb to really move on so, uh, from from Howell or to take another quarterback. So I I ultimately, if I was in the commander's uh, shoes, I would be taking Harrison to help out uh, Sam Howell. Number two is going to be the Patriots. I mean, my goodness, 4-13 and 13 for a six-time Super Bowl champion team. I mean, the days of Tom Brady now just feels so long ago. But the fact is, it's only been four years since he's been gone, and now the future about Bill Belichick has become the biggest question in Foxborough. But ultimately, you know, all the talent that they had got hurt. Christian Gonzalez, Matthew Judon, Kendrick Bourne, uh, just to name a few guys. And even then, they didn't have great talent entering the year. So they need 
on that offense. They need to upgrade everything. I'm sure that they'll take a quarterback. It would be, again, it would be dumb to not take a quarterback with that third pick because we know Mac Jones isn't the guy. We sure as hell know Bailey Zappi isn't a starting quarterback. Is he a backup? For sure. But he's not a starter. Um, Hopefully that offensive line gets some much-needed upgrades and maybe, just maybe, the Patriots can find a number one receiver. Whether that's a trade or through free agency, it's got to be out there for sure. It's just a matter of who will make the decision and how will it get done. And then the worst team in the NFL at the number one spot has been there more times this year than not the Carolina Panthers. The saving grace for them is that their season is over and that they finish 2-15, and 15, and you can't get any worse than 2-15. and 15. I don't know where to begin because they don't even have the number one pick. They don't even have a first-round pick. They put all their eggs into the Bryce Young basket. They gave up so much just to get that number one pick to select him, and look who was the guy right behind him. The guy who was picked two right behind Bryce Young is going to the playoffs. The guy who was picked number one only got two wins on the year. And I think in both wins, they didn't even score more than 13 points. So I really hope that someone can turn around Bryce Young in a hurry because we knew that it was going to be a multi-year rebuild for the Panthers. I don't think any of us expected 2-15 and 15 for the very first year of Bryce Young. You know, here's to hoping if you're a, a Carolina Panthers fan. So there it is. That's your 10 worst teams from the NFL from this past year. How many of them make upgrades? How many of them can turn things around? Only time will tell. But coming up next, we have a couple of other topics that we need to hit to because obviously the focus is so much on football. There's still hockey, basketball. There's so much going on. And we'll fire them off for you in our quick hit section. We have got a lot more news to hit, so let's fire them off really quickly in our quick hit segment. Obviously, the non-NFL story that's just happened was in the national championship for college football. Michigan knocking off Washington 34-13, to the final score. Michigan's first title in almost 30 years now. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I initially predicted Michigan to win the game because I thought Washington, at least for Washington, I thought too many people were overrating uh, Michael Penix after the win over Texas in the Sugar Bowl. Because you got to remember, Big 12 are is not a conference for defense. So the fact that he could light up Texas just like that, um, I didn't really want to buy into it too much. I did. I picked Washington on the money line, so I'll be happy with that on the Sugar Bowl. But um, when it came to the national championship, I just thought Michigan was the, the better all-around team. I thought offensively, well, maybe not all-around better, but I just thought... Um, with Blake Corum carrying the offense, I thought it was better than uh, their running back, uh, Johnson, who had a, a bad foot injury. And then you also had Penix, who kept, just was beaten up. I mean, he had the, the ribs, he had the shoulder. I mean, he, he just gutted through a lot. But I just thought Michigan overall was the better squad on that night. Corum, as I said, carrying the offense. And then obviously J.J. McCarthy. You didn't have to rely on him too much as quarterback, but when you needed to make the big plays, he was able to do it with a couple of bootlegs, a uh, couple of uh, 
good third down plays. Um, I think at least for the future, Corum, I think he can be if he decides to enter the draft and continue the pro career. I think he's probably not on the level of a starting running back or getting to that elite level. I think he could be a great third down, change of pace kind of running back in the NFL. I think he has the capability for that. I think J.J. McCarthy is kind of in the – he's towing the line of starter and backup. You know, he's probably – someone's probably going to use a second-round pick on him. And then Jim Harbaugh, I mean, that's the biggest question is where is Harbaugh going to next? And, I mean, I would be surprised if he doesn't go to the NFL, but if you just won a national championship, like, why would you want to leave? And, I mean, with all of the the chaos, I mean, I did say, like, during the second suspension with the sign stealing for Harbaugh, that that ultimately would lead him going to the pros. Um, but I just didn't think that Michigan was going to be able to win the national championship because I thought they would have lost to Ohio State. But now that it's happened, I think there's much more incentive for Harbaugh to stay because now he's uh, regarded as one of the top of maybe the top coach in college football after winning it all. You know, he finally was able to break through and win, win the entire thing. Um, and he's probably going to get a hefty contract wherever it goes. So basically he can... Uh, treat this like a free agent you know he could say oh if the nfl is paying me more i'll go to them but if michigan wants to pay me more i'll go to them um so i mean just the fact that michigan went through all of it they had harbaugh suspended twice and they rallied around him i mean props to michigan for uh winning it all and winning the uh national championship able to knock off washington just like that uh quick story here on the nhl we had the all-star rosters announced a couple of days ago and i just wanted to say the format for deciding all-stars just doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. I mean, I get having to have every team represented and then the rest of them get voted in, but you do that for baseball. I, I You do that for like other, like if you want every team represented, you're going to the coaches. I mean, it, it would be one thing if it wasn't a three on three tournament with each division. I mean, you're only able to fit like six guys on there. I mean, we have, 32 players, and then an additional eight will be added. So you have 40 guys, which means you have 10 for each division in a three-on-three. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. I would, I'd want to see the best players, and if the stupid every-team-represented rule has to get in the way, that's really annoying because you have William Nylander, uh, who's one of the top uh, point-getters and goal-scorers in hockey and he has to be voted in i mean he will get voted in but he shouldn't have to have been taking that route but because austin matthews is the big name out there for toronto he had to be the one that got the coach's vote rather than nylander so it's just really really i don't like it i really really just don't like it because you have you know you'll have maybe the best team in hockey at least points wise who i think now is the bruins possibly only have David Pasternak represent them. You know, who knows if Swayman or Olmark are going to get those votes. Um, you know, just similar. I just wish they had changed the four. I wish they changed the voting format. And every team does not have to be represented. They really don't, um, if you ask me. Shifting over, though, to the NBA, obviously off the court, the big story has been Draymond Green. Uh, the suspension, uh, it's been 12 or 13 games, I want to say, but now he was officially reinstated. And I've sort of been following along, not like every single detail, but I've just been 
sort of reading that um, he, you know, he went to go see some counseling and now we're hearing from him that, you know, he was talked out of retirement by Adam Silver. Um, and that is a good step. That's a good step by Draymond to at least acknowledge, okay, what I was doing on the court was not the right thing to do. You know, the, the choke hold on Gobert, the hit on Nurkic, like he knew, he knows it. And he's smart enough to realize like he can't be doing that. Um, so what he's saying is good, but now the big key is going to be action because we have heard the same. I mean, we've gone through the same pony and, you know, dog and pony show with Draymond after every single incident that he goes through, you know, he's saying the right stuff, but he just comes back and does it. So I think at least for this year, you know, cause I don't see a championship, uh, in golden state's future, but I at least want to see some kind of change for Draymond Green. You know, I'm not saying he's got to totally like, you know, rescind himself and be just a completely new guy, but he at least has to limit himself. So I think when he comes back into game action, when he's back on the court, if he has changed with in terms of physicality, he's not, you know, getting you know, flailing about and making inadvertent contact, whatever that may be. And he's not, you know, mouthing off to officials like he normally does and is given such a long leash because I think the league now has put their foot down and saying, enough with this crap, you change or you're not playing in this league anymore. And I think at least from what I've heard from Draymond himself and others around him with all the counseling that he's been getting and the Warriors giving him his space, that... He's doing the right things. But now those words need to be put into actions. And if they don't, then we're just going to circle back to this and we're going to be, oh, it's Draymond again. He's probably going to get kicked out of the league now. So I hope that he does turn things around. I hope he's a much different player uh, than what we see. And he's not, you know, costing the Warriors because that's what it's come down to now at this point. So sort of a wait and see on Draymond. Uh, It's not a wait and see, though, for John Morant. His season is done after suffering a torn right labrum during a practice with the Grizzlies, he'll have surgery and he's done. Um, ultimately, this was a lost season for Memphis anyway. You know, they wanted to make the big trade, you know, to get Marcus Smart in here to get a veteran voice out there. But let's be honest, after the start that the Grizzlies had when Ja was suspended for the 25 games, it was going to be a lost season regardless. I mean, they were at the bottom of the league for quite a long time and then Morant came back they gave him sort of a resurgence but ultimately the team was going nowhere even if Morant played at a high level and turned things around so ultimately like I think it's best for Memphis to just you know pack it in sort of reset for 24-25 when you can get Ja Morant for hopefully a full 82 plus a playoff run so that's sort of where I see things with the Grizzlies was they, they weren't going anywhere to begin with. So might as well, you know, pack it in at least for jaw, get them as healthy as possible and get them in the right mindset uh, for, for next season. Um, but to wrap up this segment, uh, just a quick look at the MLB free agency docket. Uh, we had a big trade uh, happen between the giants and the Mariners a couple of days ago, Robbie Ray sent to San Francisco, Mitch Haniger, Anthony DeSclafani on their way. Uh, to Seattle Um, it's a big risk I gotta say for the Giants since you got Ray coming off of Tommy John surgery Um, so they're kind of hoping that you know Ray can rediscover that Cy Young 
uh, case that he had in 21 and hopefully get him uh, back on track uh, and join what I would consider one of the top rotations in baseball in San Francisco. Now, for Hanniger, I mean, his best years came with Seattle. Um, when he signed with the Giants, he only hit for like 200. Um, so I think it's just a comfortability thing for Hanniger. And then DeSclafani, I think, can uh, bring some credibility to at least Seattle's rotation, um, considering the uh, the uh, pitchers that they have. So, you know, it's kind of a wait and see for me on uh, both of these for the Giants and for the Mariners, if it will work out for the both of them. Um, so, yeah, those are a couple of segments, at least nationally, that uh, I did want to get into before we end our show. Um, but we do need to go locally now because it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about all the Boston teams out there. And trust me, there are headlines aplenty. We'll dive into our Let's Get Local segment coming up next. This is our city. Now we dive into all our Boston teams with our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And of course, everyone around the region is talking about the possible end of Bill Belichick. I mean, we already sort of were speculating on it, you know, and we had sort of a sense that it might be time to move on. But then we're hearing like one report after another. We're hearing Mike Reese say, that it's it's highly unlikely that he's back. You got Jay Glazer on the pregame on Fox saying that he's probably gone. Um, you have this piece in The Athletic from Andrew Callahan and Doug Hyde talking about all the dysfunction that's gone on with all the decisions that Belichick has made. Um, and there's still no decision. I mean, we're here at 318 on a Tuesday afternoon, and we still don't have a decision. Um, made about Bill Belichick and who even knows if it's going to be this week it might be it might take some time for Kraft because he really is indecisive because you hear Belichick in these post games saying like I like coaching so he has no plans on retirement and he says Monday morning like I'm under contract a very rare uh take for Belichick to talk about his contract um he you know just all of these simple stuff but it's ultimately up to Robert Kraft to make this decision. Now, I have been on the camp for a while now that says it's time for a change and Belichick needs to go. Um ultimately, you know, it, it, it's just really it's really interesting like all the twists and turns that this has made. I mean, you had Kraft all uh Belichick on Monday also say he'd be willing to give up personnel to someone else. But even if he is saying this, I think that his coaching is still a little bit out of touch. I mean, he's fumbled a lot of situations this year. Um, the Trent Brown situation, when he was sitting out, you know, you give him some more money, but he still doesn't play well. Yeah, the situation at quarterback, where it, it was between Zappy and Mac, and he waited until, like, Saturday or whatever to figure out who the starter was. So there's multiple examples of on that. And he's trying to find some kind of leverage where he wants to stay because it's sounding like he wants to stay. But ultimately for me is that you ultimately need a giant overhaul. If you're going to turn things around and Kraft is not a patient man. He wants to win as much as he can, as long as he's the owner of the new England Patriots before he hands it down to his son, Jonathan. So Robert really needs to decide and he needs to decide in a hurry 
Because you've got guys out there like Mike Vrabel, who apparently there is mutual interest. You have Gerard Mayo, who says he wants to be a head coach. And if he continues to be the D.C. uh, defensive coordinator, you know, uh, back here, um, he's not going to get, he's going to look for opportunities and someone's going to give it to him. So ultimately, I am ready to say that it's time uh, to be done with Bill Belichick. And I'm sure it's going to be absolute chaos whenever the news breaks of if he stays or if he goes. Um, You know, if I had my choice, like my top three would be Gerard Mayo, Mike Vrabel, and then probably Jim Harbaugh, just like an outside, you know, guy, just to just to say. Those are my three top three options right there at head coach. But ultimately, the decision to either keep Bill Belichick or get rid of him needs to be made soon. And as much it's just how gullible I think maybe then would Bill Belichick or is Robert Kraft like would Bill Belichick actually give up his personnel? You know, he's just saying that, I think, to put some pressure on Robert Kraft. He's basically trying to turn things on Robert saying, hey, I'll make these changes. I'll go along with these decisions. You want to bring a GM? Fine. You want to strip me of personnel? You want me to just coach? Fine. Um, But he might just be trying to call Robert Kraft's bluff. That's all it is. So I probably won't have anything more to say on this until the news actually breaks. So until then, I'll just say that I would like to see Gerard Mayo succeed Bill Belichick this year. And then at the draft position, which now they have number three, I want them to take a quarterback. And ultimately, I think it's going to be Drake May. Because the way I see things, I see Chicago taking Caleb Williams and moving on from Justin Fields. I see Washington sticking with Sam Howell and going with Marvin Harrison Jr., and then at three, that leaves you Drake May. It leaves you a quarterback. And ultimately, like, I don't want to be, you know, this big fan of like, oh, if you pass on Drake May, you're going to regret it. I don't know that. But I just know I would much rather take the chance at drafting him than just letting him go and getting like a top offensive tackle to protect whoever's the quarterback's uh, blind side. That's just the case. But ultimately, this was a really bad year. And if Belichick has lost, like, if he's creating all this dysfunction, like, even if he's given less responsibilities, I don't think that can be overturned. Like, you had guys referencing Matt Patricia, and that was two seasons ago. Like, if they're still referencing on that, how can he be trusted in 2024 into 2025? You can't. You you just can't. So, that's where I am on this. And I'll talk more about this on Sports Map Radio tomorrow night, 8 to 10 with John Lyons. Ding. Nice little promo there. Uh, but moving on, you know, I, I still want to get just the negative out of here. I want to get the Red Sox out of here. I initially had them last, but I'm already sort of in this negative state that I have to keep going. The Red Sox apparently have not changed at all, despite making a change uh, for whoever's the chief baseball ops. Going from Bloom to Craig Breslow did absolutely nothing. Because ultimately, John Henry has said, I don't want to pay that much for this baseball team. I don't want to go and try and win. Because he signs a struggling Lucas Giolito for, what, $18.5, $19 million for what many expected it to be, $17 million. You put up Kenley Jansen and Masataka Yoshida up for trades to shed payroll. I mean, hell, you could have had Teoscar Hernandez. You could have had a great bat in your lineup that you can sub out in the outfield slash DH, whatever, 
but you want to shed payroll. Just like when you traded Chris Sale to Atlanta for an infield prospect, Vaughn Grissom. Now, Grissom could be good at second base, but that just opened up another hole in the starting rotation. Okay, so I don't understand what John Henry's goal is. If he's being so coy and quiet about this, just come out and say, I don't want to pay for this team anymore because that's what's going on. He, Greg Breslow ultimately got the message from John Henry and everyone in ownership saying, I don't want to pay for this team. Do not waste my money. And that's what he's doing. That's what Craig Breslow is doing. I don't want to discount Breslow on that because he's just doing what's being told. Similar to why I didn't want to discredit Heim Bloom because he's just doing what he was told. So it just frustrates me that John Henry continues to sit in the dark and not say a thing. Like he's probably not even going to be at Winter Weekend by far because it was a disaster last year when he got booed for saying that it's expensive to have baseball players. Apparently it is. And it's coming to fruition. And John Henry's lack of investment continues to frustrate the fans of Red Sox Nation, myself included, because if you're not going to go after this and you're going to put more of your investments into concerts and stand-up shows and a soccer team and the Pittsburgh Penguins, then just come out and say it. Come out and say it and just sell the team. Because if you're not invested then come out and say it. If you're content to ride off into the sunset and go about other business ventures with your four world championships, go ahead. But just stop subjecting the Red Sox and their fans to be this big market team that operates like a small market team. So it's kind of ridiculous where the Red Sox are at this point. I mean, can they turn it around by signing Blake Snell to a big contract? Maybe. But I think everyone, myself included, has lost interest and has no faith. Really. Like, I'll still be watching the games, like, over the summer, um, you know, during the season. But I'm not going to come out here and say, oh, this is going to be a championship team all because of John Henry. No. This is a team that looks destined for last place again for the third straight year. So I... I just had to get that off my chest. I mean, I don't want to be talking Red Sox in January, but considering the lack of activity that they've had, felt like I had to get it out there. All right, let's turn positive now because we've got two really good teams in Boston playing right now, the Celtics and the Bruins. And I want to start with the Celtics because they just continue to be dominant. You know, I'm going to overlook the, the, the fact that last night in Indiana, they were totally screwed by the refs. I mean, you had Buddy Heald, get Jalen Brown on the head. He hit him with the elbow and it connected with the ball simultaneously. So if I was a referee in that standpoint, if they're simultaneous, you know, if the ball, if it was ball, then head, it'd be another story. But the fact is they connected at the same time and the refs decide to overturn it because they thought the ball was hit before the head. It was clear. I mean, you have LeBron James calling out. You have a Laker defending a Celtic. You know how bad of an official you have to be for a Laker to defend a Celtic? It's absolutely crazy. I mean, you had Scal going nuts on the broadcast. And then on the other side of the floor, you had Kristaps Porzingis call for a foul. And uh, Matherin make the game-winning free throws. I mean, just barely. Um, it was a foul. Um, I mean, ran it. Celtics didn't have Jason Tatum or Sam Hauser, two big offensive threats. 
Um, so I'm not going to put too much into that Indiana loss because that was what their seventh loss of the year, their eighth loss of the year. They're still 17 and O at home. They still have the best record in the NBA. Like nothing's going to change. Like the only things that I'm going to change about this team is when it gets to playoff time. Like if they're still running into these issues that they've had since Joe Missoula has become head coach, then I'll talk about it and possibly change my opinion. But the fact is, this is the best starting five in the NBA. Al Horford is a reliable sixth man. And you have a pretty good bench that you can just plug and play. I mean, we've seen, obviously, Horford, Hauser, and Pritchard be those consistent guys off the bench. But after that, when you can flip-flop with uh, O'Shea Brissett and Delano Banton and Luke Cornett and Namias Keita, I think it's good. I still would like them to see uh, a bench piece get added because I don't think I could rely on Cornett or Keita to be the backup center when it gets to playoff time. Um, I I do still like the Celtics' chances. I mean, there are what I said a couple of weeks ago was that the tendencies that they saw, whether it be like third quarter, like getting the game out of hand in the third quarter or end of game situations, clutch time situations. Like if that appears now and again, then I'll be okay with it. But it was just happening so much last year that there was a big concern for it. So ultimately if there's a stretch of like three games in two weeks where that happens, then I'll be concerned. But right now I have no worries about the Celtics. No worries at all. I am completely content with how they are right now. And I'm happy that they still remain atop the basketball world. Um, And then the Bruins, obviously they're still winning, but I do have to put it a little negative. The defense is turning into a little bit of an issue for me. I mean, they lost in a shootout to Colorado last night. Um, They had a a 6-5 loss to Pittsburgh. I mean, you got to keep in mind, the last three games, they've allowed six goals to Pittsburgh, three to Tampa, and four to Colorado. Now, they won the game against Tampa, but still, like defensively, I'm a little bit concerned. I mean, they've got the fifth-best goals against average at 267. But the the thing is, like, Jeremy Swayman and Linus Olmark can only bail them out for so much. I mean, yeah, they got the second-best save percentage as a team, and, but they've made the seventh most saves in hockey, which means shots are getting to the net. Like, it's concerning that so many of those saves have had to be made already. And Swayman and Omar are not going to bail you out every single time. You know, at least offensively, it's nice to see Trent Frederick making more of an impact uh, with their goal scoring. I mean, he had 17 goals all of last year, and he's got 12 already with this increased role. But it's defensively where I really have concerns for this team, at least for a potential playoff run. I mean, I wasn't expecting, you know, the dominant team. I don't think anyone was, except for maybe Bridget Peru. <laughs> uh, when we were talking, when we uh, talked, you know, no one was expecting the history-making team. But no one expected them to, like, win as much as they are. And I think just because they're outscoring their opponent is the big key. I don't, I think it has to, you know, you know, that that's a given. Ultimately, I just thought of what I just said. You outscore your opponent, you win the game. Um, no, but I just mean they can get into some some of these high-scoring affairs and they can just score more. You know, defensively down the line when it gets to these overtime periods. I mean, we've seen their records in overtime. It's not good this year. So hopefully Jim Montgomery can turn things around uh, from a defensive side of things because if they don't turn that around, then 
it's not going to be a long run in the playoffs for the Boston Bruins. But there is news aplenty in Boston, and I'm glad we could get through all of it. So now that we can end our show on the light note with our LOL moment of the week. That's coming up next. wrap up our show with our lol moment of the week and we're actually going to combine it with our let's get local because this moment comes from america's most beloved ballpark fenway and there was a photo last week that captured a, a very odd thing that was going on in fenway park if you look at this photo you'll see on the jumbotron there's a certain game that's being played on there and it's not any kind of baseball highlight anything like that this is an actual video game and not just any game, it's Fortnite, one of the most popular games of the 21st century, and it was being played on the big screen. Now, the first thing I had to say is, hey, whatever keeps Red Sox enter- Red Sox fans entertained this season, I'll be, I'll, I'll have it. But we then obviously heard our own uh, WBI's Rob Bradford, Brad Foe, was able to report that uh, they're just testing out. Uh, because there's a gaming championship or something like that. Um, I'll just put it like this. I'm not a gamer. I'm not that knowledgeable when it comes to video games. And I don't even really know about Fortnite or whatever. But when I talk about the lack of investment to the Red Sox that John Henry has, Exhibit A right here. I mean, it. I will say it is It is a dream to uh, to see something other than like highlights or whatever on a on a jumbotron like if i was there with like an xbox or a playstation i was playing a game there i think it would be pretty cool it would be pretty dang cool so i can understand you know the fascination with seeing a game on this big time you know scoreboard or whatever i i think using that scoreboard for anything other than like sport you know highlights like during a game or whatever like if you're there live in person i i think that is pretty cool so i mean i'm not I'm not like angry with it or anything like that. I just think it was very odd that in January, someone would be using the Fenway Park scoreboard to be playing Fortnite on there. And I probably wouldn't have expected uh, Fortnite to be one of the things that would be, or a gaming tournament to be played at Fenway Park. I would have thought it would have been, you know, in a, in a smaller setting, but I, I guess I need to talk to like a gaming expert or whatever. Cause I, I don't understand the popularity of like online gaming, anything like that. So I guess uh, Fenway Park or whoever runs that facility for having someone playing Fortnite leaked out on a photo on your scoreboard, you've landed yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week. And with that, it's a wrap on episode 99 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get this podcast, make sure you're following myself on all social media platforms on X. I am Joe Braverman PBP. Follow this podcast as well on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And get ready, everybody, because next week, it's the landmark 100th episode of Let Me Speak. We will see you then. Later.